description of the existence of factions within a communist party which has for decades preferred to project a facade of unbreakable unity. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The big banks. The impossible takes two days and miracles take three. Where well, you've got so many different departments and divisions. Shaping investors' expectations. Money for nothing. Hello, good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. It's Tuesday the 6th of January and I'm Richard Harris. It's been a busy news day overnight and here are the business headlines. Brent oil prices take another beating. The euro hits a near-decade low but steadies overnight. Shares follow suit, falling 4% in Europe and nearly 2% in the US. And it's judgment day for mainland cities as Chinese authorities decide which debt they will or which they will not support. A week is certainly a long time in the markets and to discuss these issues we've gathered for you Kenrick Chung of Convoy Financial Services who will be talking about the markets and the effect on the Mandatory Provident Fund, the MPF. And next up is Peter Tal-Larsen, who will be bringing us the latest report on global market risks from Reuters Breaking Views. And finally, K.K. Chua joins us in the studio and he'll gently lead us through a feminine business, Mary Kay, the beauty company. And our guest host this morning, who's a man who has no need for beauty products of any kind, is our regular guest host on a Tuesday, financial commentator and sales trader, Andrew Sullivan. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Well, what a difference a week makes. I think um, uh, if I was being boring, I'd liken it to 93, 94, when we went away to Christmas feeling happy and woke up in the new year with a bit of a nightmare. What do you think? Well, certainly a little bit of a hangover, maybe. But, no, I, I mean, I think a lot of this is it just reinforces what we've said earlier, the fact that the macro risks are still very much there uh, and investors have to be aware. I mean, a lot of the overnight worries were first on, you know, Greece leaving the euro, and, and whilst, you know, a number of commentators have said that could be coped with, uh, nobody really knows the machinations and the actual working out of it and how it affects the other other members of the euro community. And, and we've still got, you know, concerns about deflation in Europe. Uh, certainly the FT yesterday was running a large article on whether economists really believe that QE for Europe will work. So there are a lot of worries out there. But we've been here before, haven't we, with the European worries? Surely they've been rehearsed time and time again? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think in the past we've always sort of relied on what Draghi has said so that, you know, whatever was needed would be done. Uh, the reality is, though, people are wondering that even if he does manage to implement QE, whether that will be enough now, especially, uh, as you were saying earlier, the fall in oil price, which initially looks like a very good thing in so much as it makes, you know, petrol cheaper for people and, you know, the, 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 uh, the general economy should benefit. But at the end of the day, the, the producer of that oil are also going to suffer. It's not that good if uh, your trading counterparties go bust. Well, um, that's certainly true. Anyway, the discussion about Europe yesterday with Mario Draghi unearthed the row between the ECB and the Germans. Coming to a head, the Greek elections in three weeks might bring a radical nationalistic government to power. Their policy is to roll back the austerity measures that the ECB, OK, let's say Germany, require for the bailout. So there was much talk about the Germans making ambivalent statements that seemed to indicate that they were prepared to see Greece leave the currency union, known as Grexit. Karl Weinberg, founder of High Frequency Economics, is not positive on Greece staying in and the chances of fixing things. 
I've been arguing for a total restructuring of Greek debt without a haircut since March of 2010. All right, I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal and talked about it here many times. Based on my background on restructuring loans to Latin America in the 1980s, this could have worked wonders for Greece. But they're past the point now, I fear, where just a simple multi-year restructuring can fix the problem. Their debt is 175% of GDP. It's more now than it was when we started this thing almost five years ago, and it's getting worse and the economy is not growing to perform nearly well enough to service the debt that's out there. There's no good way out of this now. Well, that sounds rather negative. Uh, Roger Bootle, who's capital, uh, chairman of Capital Economics, gave his view to the BBC about what he thought the ability of the Europeans to execute. I have to say, I think it's very, very dangerous for the German government or indeed other Eurozone governments to be complacent about this. For a start, Mario Draghi's pledge to do whatever it takes is completely untested. It's one thing to say you're going to buy unlimited amounts of government bonds. It's another thing to actually do it for the Bundesbank to participate in that, for the Bundesbank to be allowed to participate in it by the German Constitutional Court. I I I suspect that the apparent confidence in Berlin that um, the system could withstand a Greek exit has more to do with the recent performance of the bond markets themselves and the fact that with problems actually intensifying in Greece over recent weeks, there's been no sign so far of any contagion into the markets of Portugal, Spain and Italy. That can all change very, very quickly. Well, Jeremy Batson Carr of UK broker Charles Stanley was also on and he said how the big dealers were feeling on their first day back at school. Uh, Today was the day when the big guns returned to their desks following the festive break and they did not like what they saw one little bit. Uh, Admittedly, Greek borrowing costs have not uh, continued to rise, but they have been rising in Italy and Spain. And I think that the reason for that is that the implications or ramifications of a Greek exit go a lot wider than just simply Greek reneging on its bonds. Uh, It could have an impact on some of the... uh, recently constructed institutions such as the European Financial Stability Facility, for example, which may ultimately mean that other countries are forced to put money to the pot that they're likely very unwilling to do. So this is going to have much more significant ramifications than the size of the Greek economy without being too flippant, which is essentially a rounding error in European terms. Well, that's put them in their place. One final issue is that this is a big election year for many European countries. People are aware that while the bosses have done well, the ordinary worker has not. There's a chance of change in places like Portugal, Spain, Italy, as well as Greece, and also the big one in the UK, which Charles Diebel, head of strategy of Aviva Investors, uh, talks about. I think it's very big, and you know, particularly as in certain cases, for example in the UK, it, it, it begs a much bigger question that could have significant macroeconomic effects. We have you know, an election, let's say we get some sort of coalition. If it involves the Tories, it's going to involve some sort of Euro referendum, and that could really defer inf- investment and anybody particularly wanting to get involved in UK assets over the next 18 months even. Well, away from Europe's woes, the oil price fell sharply with Brent currently at $53.11. West Texas just dipped below the $50 mark, but uh, a few minutes ago was just crawling over the $50 mark by the narrowest of margins. Uh, Wall Street saw declines of 1.8% on the S&P index, ending at 2022. And this was after big falls in Europe, averaging around 3.7%. 
uh, with the larger markets down around 2% and uh, fringe Italy down five, as large as 5%. Uh, the currencies have not quite suffered as much as they had fallen the day before. The euro is trading at $1.19. The yen's improved a touch, in fact, 119 uh, 0.6 yen and sterling is at uh, 152 uh, or Hong Kong dollars and 80 cents uh, to the pound. Gold moved up uh, with all the fuss but not by very much to 1,205 to the US dollar. Uh, more locally, the Shanghai market had a bumper day yesterday, uh, catching up, having been closed over the extended New Year holiday uh, and it rose 3.6% to 3,351. Uh, a few pieces of uh, more local news. It's Judgment Day. Local governments face a decision today as the Chinese authorities uh, decide whether which debt they will or will not support. There's some speculation that some of the 700 billion Hong Kong dollars of local authority debt will no longer be backed by the government. Uh, BMW has agreed to pay $820 million uh, to its distributors in China to help cover losses suffered by retailers who threatened to stop selling the cars. Auto analyst Vivek Vadia of Frost Sullivan explains the car market in China. Yeah, China had a uh, sort of dream run in last decade and if you see the numbers uh, say four years ago or five years ago, they have more than doubled. Uh, so, you know, now we have to uh, adjust to this new normal that China can't keep growing at 20%, 25% per annum. And uh, on a wider base, uh, the growth would be uh, 5 to 7%. But uh, if you look at the number of vehicles that get added, that's, that's still uh, pretty significant. So we're going to move now to Kenrick Chung from Convoy Financial Services, who's on the line. Uh, Convoy have just uh, completed a report on the MPF in Hong Kong. But in terms of doing that, Kenrick, you also look at the markets quite closely uh, because clearly you want to try and recommend particular uh, MPF areas of the world to others. Well, what are your favourites at the moment? Yes, good morning, everyone. Uh, in 2015, we believe that the market will continue to be too volatile and uh, lose the last light proof it, okay? And therefore, uh, after the MPF members uh, assess their risk tolerance, we would like to suggest uh, U.S., uh, Asian, and uh, uh, China because there's increasing confidence showing the improving economy of the U.S. and it will also benefit Asian countries, including China, and the recent uh, reduction in the oil price also helps the economy. So does all the discussion we've had about Europe and uh, the wobblies they're having there, would that uh, impact your views? Uh, I think the issue in Europe, uh, uh, the member has to be very careful because, you know, MPF is a long-term investment and uh, the short-term uh, fluctuation should not affect the long-term strategy of the member. And one thing we have to remember is all the MPF investment fund is lumped in Hong Kong dollars. Even uh, the fluctuation in stock market in the Europe, uh, we have to remember the, the, the currency risk. Yeah, that's a very good, important point, Kenrick, although um, uh, clearly the currency's gone down, so maybe in the longer term we may see that move. But there is a school of thought for MPFs that would say if people live in Asia or live in Hong Kong, that perhaps they should just keep all of their MPF assets in Asian assets because it's connected to the economies that they're going to retire in. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, it, it may be true, but it may not be, because uh, the, the global economy is uh, close to length at this point of time. Even you live in Asia, uh, we are 
we are being affected by by everything、uh, happen in the world. Therefore, we have to handle the risk allocation of our MPF carefully. But this is true because Asia is is a key region in in the global economy. Maybe in the coming few tens of years, we cannot forget this this region for our investment. So basically,、uh, even though we live here, we have to look globally as well. Well, thank you very much, Kenrick. That's Kenrick Chung from Convoy Financial Services. It's currently just past eight fifteen. The Community Care Fund has relaunched a program to provide a living subsidy for eligible non-public housing and non-CSSA low-income households to relieve their financial pressure. Applications are being handled in phases. Beneficiaries of the living subsidy program launched earlier will receive letters and need not apply again. For details, please visit the fund's website or call two one eight zero double six double six. One person households can confirm eligibility or submit new applications from now until August thirty first. Well, Reuters breaking views annual predictions are a collection of punchy and provocative views on what will happen in 2015, or maybe what won't happen, but what they think they should.、Uh, good morning, Peter Tal Larson.、Uh, how are you this morning? Good morning, very well.、Thank、good.、You. Peter is Asia editor of Reuters Breaking Views, who've just come out with a large report on, I guess, some、uh, blue sky concepts that people might be looking at in terms of their investment for 2015. That's right. Yes, we try to sort of.、Um, uh Look into the crystal ball and,、uh, and 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 make some predictions for the coming year.、Um, not all of them will come true, but hopefully,、uh, we think that at least they will、uh, make people think a bit about what might happen. And、uh, let's go start with your favourite. What are you?、Uh, there must be something that stands out most of all. Well, I think the the. I mean, there's there's a it's a very wide range of different topics, so um, um, you know you can、uh, you can start from different places. That's why I'm saying your favourite. But my favourite, I think, probably is、um, uh, my colleague Andy Mukherjee,、um, who's been following the Japanese economy pretty closely, has basically predicted that、um, uh, that the Jap- Japan will pioneer、uh, what he calls helicopter money in 2015,、um, and this is a, a sort of a A central banking concept,、um, which was introduced ages ago by Milton Friedman,、and、the idea was that essentially, if, if if an economy is stuck in a in a sort of in a slump, then the last resort really would be for central banks to launch helicopters and scatter dollar bills or, or, or yen. Ah,、oh, right. So rather than as we used to talk about helicopter Ben with his mere QE, but creating money with the flash of a pen, you'd actually be handing out grubby banknotes. I mean, in, in a sort of conceptual way. I mean, obviously that would be pretty extreme. But I think one thing that we're saying is that what Japan could do,、um, and I think is probably a real possibility,、um, is that the, the central bank, the, the Bank of Japan, has bought so many、uh, Japanese government bonds now that it's almost unthinkable that, that they will ever be able to sell those bonds back to the investing public. Um, and one thing, you know, and as long as people believe that those in bonds will be sold back at some point, that will actually be a break on the effectiveness of Japan's policy.、Mm. So one thing that could happen, one one sort of fairly radical idea out there, would be for the government to,、uh, at the stroke of the pen, change the maturity of those government bonds held by the Bank of Japan and make them perpetual. And that way. You basically、uh, the, the debt would would effectively disappear in terms of actually kind of coming back into the market at some point, and um, uh, Japan would have um, um, possibly dealt with them、um, its、uh, its debt problem. Yeah, well, we all know with economics, there's always cause and effect. So,、um, for one stroke of the pen on one side of the balance sheet, you end up 
with, with another. But um, that's for another day. Let's look at China next because you've mm. got a couple of uh, views on China. First of all, you think its growth looks pretty hard to sustain. Now, that's not a new idea. That's not a new idea. I mean, what we've done is we've tried to um, uh, put some numbers around that, really. Um, I mean, people have, have talked about the Chinese economy growing 7% or maybe 6% or maybe even less. Um, but what we try to do is sort of say, look at the next 20 years and what is a realistic growth rate for, for the Chinese economy. And um, a lot of people are sort of effectively extrapolating from, from past experience and saying, well, maybe China will grow at 7% a year for the next 20 years or maybe 6 um, But we find that actually that, that even that is fairly unlikely. I mean, if you assume a growth rate for the rest of the world, about 2%, um, then if China grows at 7, 6 7%, its economy will double as a proportion of global GDP. It will go from being about... I'm off the top of my head here, I think it's about 10, 11% of global GDP to about 22% but in I, the I, next 20 years. I've thought of that. China, because it's such a large economy, you can't really think of that happening because mm. global growth will be growing that big. Now, if you're a country like Mongolia with a very tiny GDP, you can go 15% or so a year. But That's with right. China, that just can't happen. That's right. I mean, it really it requires... So, so where is the sustainable growth level, you think? If you're looking at the U.S., we generally think of it as around 2.5%. Mm. Where would you think China might end up in the next decade? Well, I think that's, I mean, that's the, uh, <laughs> that's the, the tr this multi-trillion dollar question. Um, I don't think we're going to try and put a, f a figure on the growth rate, but I, mean, I think really what we're trying to say is the, the sort of the, the school of forecasting that takes the past growth rate, subtracts a little bit and then says it will carry on at that sort of level, um, is not, that's not necessarily a terribly, uh, a kind of predictable it's not sustainable. Uh, or sustainable uh, point of view. Sorry, Andrew, you've got a question. Well, I, I, th I think one of the things here, though, when we're looking at China is the fact that historically, as you're saying, we're, mm. we're extrapolating numbers historically where China has been the cheap exporter of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, I mean, it's very much clear that uh, Beijing is looking to, to tap into some of that domestic consumption. Mm -hmm. and, and whilst it may not be, you know, 6 7% for the next 20 years, certainly the growth historically that we've seen in the U.S. has always been the big driver of the U.S. market. So that's going to have a, a positive play there on their contribution to the world GDP? Oh, there's no question that, that domestic consumption will uh, uh, increase and play a big role. I mean, it's, it's just a very large economy. But it's hard to see uh, the domestic consumption taking up the slack entirely from what has been an export-led export uh, It's very difficult recovery. to change the direction of the whole economy, uh, change the direction of the oil tanker, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and, I mean, I'm, I, I should caveat this by saying, I mean, you, we could have had this conversation 10 years ago and um, we would have said, well, you know, China's been growing at this breakneck speed for 25 years. It's impossible. It's unlikely that it will continue for another 10. And then it did. So, um, you know, there, there are possibilities that, that, that this growth can continue. OK, um, let's have a look at another couple of things. The one that um, uh, grabbed my eye was the too big to fail club will shrink mm. in 2015. Is that because they failed? <laughs> um, let's hope not. <laughs> um, no, I think I think what this is really is um, the the, the uh, after the crisis, regulators put together a list of what they call globally systemically important financial institutions, or GCFIs for short. Um, and these are basically banks that have been identified as sort of effectively too big to fail and therefore need to hold extra capital. Um, and, uh, and for the past few years, that's really been sort of almost a badge of honour. It's been kind of like, well, you're in the too big to fail club. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be in that? But we're getting to a point now where 
actually the the requirements that are being loaded onto those banks in that group are much greater and, and, and heavier, and there's more oversight and more regulation for those banks. And it's getting to the point where they could almost be thinking about trying to get out of it. And the regulators have actually set out a pretty clear roadmap. They've basically published their workings and said, this is how we decide which banks go in the group and how much capital they have to hold. And you can imagine a situation where some banks will be looking at those numbers and thinking, well, if we just lop off a business here or trim our exposures a bit here, we can actually get out of this group and actually reduce our capital requirements a bit. And I think banks will be thinking about that. And also uh, uh, activist shareholders, for example, will be looking at some of these banks and saying, well, if you reorganized yourself in this way, you could actually save yourself a bit of capital and, uh, and, and, and therefore have better returns for shareholders. So I think that's the dynamic that will begin to take hold in, uh, in 2015. What do you think about too big to fail, Andrew? I think it's certainly right. I mean, I, un unfortunately, I mean, whilst the regulators are trying to prevent, as, as we're saying, this, this risk to the whole financial system, that is hurting shareholders. Uh, and at mm -hmm. the end of the day, the banks have a fiduciary duty to, to do the best for their shareholders. So, you know, maybe employing 100 compliance officers doesn't actually help their balance Yeah, sheet. we might end up with banks becoming non-governmental organisations at, at this rate. Well, some of them you could probably say they already were. <laughs> yeah, they yeah. certainly act like it internally. <laughs> um, uh, Peter, just uh, finally, uh, the other one that grabbed me, wearable tech will go from novelty to necessity. Does that mean I have to give my Breitling away for some little plastic thing on my wrist? Well, you can have both. I mean, I, I, I wear a watch. And I I've do have two wrists, a, of course. Uh, we well, do have two wrists as well. Um, I wear a watch and I've got a, a jawbone uh, up that monitors my steps and uh, how long I sleep for and things like that. I mean, these, are, these, these sort of gadgets until now have been um, basically sort of technology looking for a purpose. Um, and, but I think what's happening is, uh, it's quite interesting, is, for example, some insurance companies are now uh, uh, introducing policies that where if you wear one of these things and you share that data with your insurer, you can actually get, provided you meet certain criteria in terms of sort of certain level of activity and, and so forth, you can actually get discounts on your, um, on your insurance premiums. And so actually we're getting to a point where uh, that will actually be sort of a, a valuable thing to do. And if you imagine sort of technological advances, you know, pretty soon you'll be able to have something that can monitor your blood sugar levels or, if, for example, if you're diabetic or, if, you know, that can, uh, can measure your heart rate or your blood pressure. And you can imagine sort of uh, medical organizations and insurance companies really giving people a big incentive to wear a device like that because it actually makes monitoring their condition yeah. much easier. Well, Peter, thank you very much for coming in, uh, giving us some blue-eyed sky ideas. That's Peter Tal Larson, Asia editor of Reuters Breaking Views. Well, I'm delighted to have uh, sitting next to me uh, K.K. Chua, who is the president of the Asia-Pacific region of Mary Kay. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you, K.K. Now, it seems to be slightly incongruous that we're talking about uh, a beauty company and we're both <laughs> sitting here in suits, um, uh, as in Andrew in the Queensway studio. Uh, so you better tell us a little bit about the business. Well, I think um, Mary Kay is involved in the uh, what we call the direct selling business, but direct selling is really another channel of distribution. And uh, we started Mary Kay China 20 years ago. We are celebrating our 20th anniversary. And I'm uh, very proud to say that uh, Mary Kay China is now bigger than the United States. And your products are beauty skincare products? products um, you know, color products. We make women beautiful. 
And, um, you know, men are happy, so we're in the peace business. I see. Well, that, that's quite good. At least somebody is. Uh, but your business model is based on what you call consultants, I think. Yes. I think our consultant uh, provides what we call personalized service. But what's happening, Richard, of late is that direct selling uh, is evolving with the uh, onset of online ordering. Uh, you really have to merge personalized uh, service, mobility, uh, and uh, online ordering all into one in order for you to be sustainable. And uh, we're very proud to say that uh, the last, uh, based on the Kanta market report in the first half of 2014, we actually um, uh, came out as uh, number one brand in China. And what's led to your success in China? Uh, I think it's understanding where the market is moving, understanding how the market is developing, understanding the uh, needs of women, Asian women, um, and uh, meeting those needs. Uh, and, and the move from, uh, typically it's been a direct selling process, uh, right. ladies selling to ladies. Yes. But now you're talking about online retailing, which is, is that a well, game changer for your industry? Not really. I think online, everybody does online ordering. It's a question of them ordering online and us being shipping, able to ship to them directly. I think what is more important, Richard, is uh, how the entire mobile technology plays into this whole whole equation um, uh, because uh, it's no more uh, me coming to you, giving you a skincare class and selling to you. Uh, it's me using my apps and, and all that and showing you what your skin was before and after and how you could actually order yourself online uh, um, you know, directly from the company. I see. So, so you look at both the the physical sale and the online sale as being it's complementary. evolving to be one. Mm. And 2015, is that looking like a good year for you? Well, we always like to think that it's not going to be a good year. <laughs> um, we grew 34% last year based on the uh, uh, more than a billion US dollar base. So, um, you know, it's going to be, I think, I believe in exciting year. Good. Well, KK, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me, Richard. KK Chua, who's president of Asia-Pacific region of Mary Kay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Andrew, just to finish things off, um, what's your feeling about 2015? We haven't had you talking about that yet. Well, I'm hopefully optimistic, but I mean, I think that uh, we're not dissimilar to where we are at the beginning of 2014, over the, only maybe some of the uh, the macro issues are a little bit worse. But I think certainly for investors, you know, it's still going to be a matter of doing due diligence and, and watching companies carefully and sticking to those they know. Um, certainly this week, I mean, we've got a big week ahead. We've got China, PPI and CPI. We've got, you know, loans data and obviously we've got the big jobs report coming out of the US. So, so still um, a little bit of uncertainty out there but um it wouldn't be a market otherwise <laughs> excellent that's what we like okay thank you very much uh, andrew that's uh, andrew sullivan who's our commentator for the day just finally the markets are not looking so good this morning australia's down 1.7 percent to 5,333 and the nikkei's down nearly two percent 17,062 thank you very much for joining money for nothing today i'm richard harris tomorrow you'll have uh, renita back renita malhotra And um, just before we go to the news, the weather is going to be mainly cloudy with mist patches in the morning and at night. Sunny periods during the day today, maximum temperature 22 degrees. Temperatures will drop significantly tomorrow. The current temperature is 19 degrees and the relative humidity is 90%. Now the news read by Samantha Butler. 
A pro-democracy campaigner, Professor Joseph Cheng, says he's not surprised police are seeking dozens of democracy activists suspected of instigating the Occupy movement's mass sit-ins last year. They include members of the Federation of Students and Scholarism, as well as the League of Social Democrats and Pan-Democrat Lawmakers. Professor Cheng from City University told RTHK the police action didn't foster a healthy environment to discuss political reform. This is expected. It is not surprising. The police certainly has the right to do so. But apparently the authorities, the CY Leung administration, want to raise the cost of engaging in various type of protest activities. And this certainly is not healthy for political development in Hong Kong. Civic Party leader Alan Leung says the government should table its political reform proposal right now so pan-democrat lawmakers can veto it immediately and save everyone's time. He was commenting on reports that the government will unveil new proposals on the electoral methods for the 2017 chief executive poll tomorrow as part of its second round of public consultation. Today, the government is expected to submit its public sentiment report to Beijing, listing events that happened from when Beijing set out its political framework for Hong Kong to when the authorities cleared away the last of the pro-democracy Occupy sites. Indonesia has announced harsh measures against those who allowed a doomed AirAsia flight to take off without proper permits. Radio Australia's Linda Gruen 